We're going to turn to the word of the Lord today as we continue in our sermon series on the parables of patience. Today is part three, and so we're going to be in the chapter of Matthew 20, or that is to say chapter 20 of Matthew. So you can turn there now, if you will, and let's pray together. Almighty God, as we open your word, we pray that you would open our hearts and we do that as well. We open our hearts and turn our minds to you. We open our ears and ask that you would speak to us by your scripture once again today. Not only the words that are written, which are so eternally precious to us, but also the spirit that has breathed them, which is your very spirit, the Holy Spirit, God himself. And so we ask God that you by your spirit would enlighten us today in what you want us to hear from you in how we are to apply it in our lives, and how we can grow in patience, in perseverance, and in faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So this series is about parables. And as you'll recall, parables in the context of the New Testament are short stories, often using symbolic uh, elements to convey moral or spiritual truths. They formed a cornerstone of Jesus' earthly ministry of teaching, when he went out preaching and teaching, as we see in the Gospels, about a third of the time, what he did was teach through parables. So that's a very significant percentage of his teaching. And it must be said that it's some of the most memorable of his teaching, most people would agree. And that is because the parables utilize drama. They utilize characters and, and interactions between people. They have vibrant imagery and vibrant symbology. And so they... Uh, make an impact on us, but also it benefits us to lean in and learn more from the parables. Will you turn to the person next to you and say, we can lean in and learn more. We'll do that. If you lean in, you look leaner too. I don't know. It depends on which way you lean. You can lean, but don't be mean. Many of Jesus's parables also relate very distinctly to this virtue of patience, which has uh, been such a key focus for us in this year of patience, as the Lord has spoken to us about 2022. But patience is always important, and patience has always been principal to much of Jesus' teaching. And in fact, the very nature of parable teaching involves an element of enhanced patience, because as I've just described, the stories require us to lean in and learn more, or at least we will benefit from these stories most when we dig into them and look for the meanings within the parables. And we know that Jesus is ready and willing to give those meanings. Very often in the scriptures, the parables are defined or they are interpreted by Jesus himself on the occasion of his apostles coming to him and saying, we don't get it, explain it to us. And that is in part because the parables are meant to present the truth of God in such a way that while it is immediately available to everyone, it is not necessarily immediately discernible to everyone. It's an invitation from God to come to God for a deeper understanding about the meaning and the message of these parables. Today, as I mentioned, we're in Matthew chapter 20. And there is a parable called frequently the parable of the laborers or the parables of, parable of the laborers in the vineyard. I've titled uh, this message, The Landowner and the Laborers, because the parable is really about both of those parties, the landowner who hires the laborers and the laborers who work for the landowner. This landowner is a generous character. He surprises his workers, and maybe Jesus surprises his hearers when they hear what the landowner does, which is, in short, to pay the hired workers who are only hired for a very small period of the day, including those that are hired even in the very last hour, the 11th hour. That's, in fact, um, probably part of the origin of that phrase that you have heard, the 11th hour, is this very parable by Jesus. The landowner pays those workers the same as those that were hired at the very beginning of the day. Now, I say generous, but you might hear unfair, because that's not very equitable, is it? Equal pay for equal work. That's a phrase we hear, and it's a phrase that most of us would want to readily affirm. Here, 
the landowner gives unequal, pay, or rather, let me put it this way, equal pay for unequal work. But he does that not in the sense that we might expect by being stingy with some, but rather by being generous with others. Many who hear this story find themselves challenged by the story because they themselves are uncomfortable with what the landowner does, and yet the landowner is presented as a metaphor for God. So there's a challenge in this parable, and the parable concludes by saying the last shall be first. And that phrase actually gives us a little bit of a clue about the context of this message. I will come back to that point in a moment. Let me say, as we come to look at the parable itself, that there's a basic kind of theme that I hope you will be able to see with me in this text. And it is about patient partnership and trust. Partnership with the landowner, if you will, and trust of the employer, if you will, but remembering that that character in the story is a stand-in for God, we recognize that the parable is about eliciting our acceptance of God's invitation to be partners with him and to trust him and to appreciate both his reliability to his word, because just like the landowner, God does what he says and says what he does, and also his generosity, because just like the landowner, God often gives more than what we might reasonably expect. No matter how long we may have strained God's patience and presumed upon God's generosity, the reality is if we are willing to believe God at his word, to take him at his promise, and to trust him in his righteousness, then no matter what our background, our future is good in him. And all the rewards of repentance are ready and waiting to be received by anyone willing to believe and obey what Jesus has taught and what Jesus demonstrates even by his spirit in his life at work in us here and now today. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. So let's look at the parable of the landowner and the laborers in the first 16 verses of Matthew chapter 20. I've determined to look at this passage with you in the translation that is known as the Passion Translation, TPT, the Passion Translation. You're probably aware that there's a great variety of English translations of the scriptures, and many of them are very good in their own way. There's a, a, a dynamic range or a spectrum uh, along which translations uh, can be made in general, and it's frequently referenced in terms of translation of the original Bible text. And it's one that goes from more literal to more dynamic is precisely the term that is typically used. More literal translations can be thought of as word-for-word -word translations. They put great effort and scholarship into maintaining the syntax, the precise verbal parallels between languages, which is always a matter of interpretation, which always involves a certain degree of uh, opinion. And that is why translations are usually carried out by large numbers of individuals, committees of scholars. However, there are also translations that are done by a single person. Uh, Jerome uh, famously translated the Bible into Latin, and that is the, uh, the Vulgate, as it's known. In contemporary times, Eugene Peterson made a translation of the entire Bible known as The Message, and he did that as a solitary work. It's not to say he didn't consult anybody else, but it's primarily his. But typically, if you have a New American Standard Bible or a King James Bible, for that matter, those are the works of multiple translators. And the Passion Translation is like that as well. Now, I mentioned that some translations put more of an emphasis on syntax and grammar and word for word. The other end of the spectrum, the dynamic kind of interpretation or translation, is more of a thought-for-thought -thought translation. In other words, because much of language reflects colloquialisms and, and uh, daily um, uh, interactions and, and social structures, sometimes you can have the precise verbal translation but not get the idea. 
Now, why am I pontificating about all of this with you? Because I want to mention that the Passion Translation is a more dynamic translation. It is intending to try and rightly in, um, translate the text and pay attention to the meaning of the words, but also at times translate the idea conveyed by those words into something that's more available to us in our contemporary context. So a translation like this will often feel a little bit more contemporary, a little more modern, perhaps. There's value in both kinds of translations. It is very important to have a translation that you know is really getting you as close to the original text as possible. And as I mentioned, there are many that are like that. But most translations land somewhere in between. The reason I chose the Passion Translation today is because I enjoy the way it brings a certain sense of immediacy to this text. Not many of us have hired ourselves out as laborers uh, in a field to bring in a crop. Some of us may have. I grew up in an area where there was a lot of work like that. And in fact, not far from here, there are plenty of agricultural environments where people are working. But for many contemporary urban dwellers, as, as most of us are, we live here in Los Angeles, the story may seem a little bit aloof, a little bit removed from us. And so I think the benefit of a slightly more contemporary translation in this context is that it might bring the story a little bit closer to us in terms of our sensibilities. Just this week, I had uh, cause to rent a U-Haul truck. We were uh, getting a, uh, a, a piece of furniture from a member of the family. We're very grateful for that. And so we had to get a truck that could accommodate that, that uh, furniture, furnishings, actually, and uh, take some stuff out of our home and bring some new stuff into it. So you know, when you go to the U-Haul, what do you see standing there uh, at the uh, driveway? Workers, laborers, day laborers. And they're eager to be hired. And they're there first thing in the morning if they, if they really want the job, right? Because very often, it's very difficult to get hired later in the day. Most people that are looking for day work, most people that are looking to hire day laborers are starting the job early, and they're going to hire early. But then there's also that possibility, and you'll see this even if you drive by a place like that, or you can drive by Lowe's or something like that, and you'll see sometimes the crowd of day laborers available for hire will diminish as the day goes on, but there might still be one or two or three, four people there. And if a job comes late in the day, they're, they're eager for it. Well, that's what this story is about. It's about people doing that very same thing. People who don't have a steady for hire job, but they're eager to work, they're willing to work, they often have families to feed, and so they are available in the marketplace for hire. And the reason that a landowner might be looking to hire people like this when you would suppose that such a landowner already has a, a paid staff is because most likely this is during the harvest. In other words, the crop is coming in, this is a vineyard, and so the grapes are ready to be picked. And that's something that anybody who's involved in any kind of agricultural enterprise will readily appreciate is on the clock. It has to happen in a certain window of time. Otherwise, the crop itself stands to be either picked too early or picked too late. And either way, it does damage to the revenue and the, and the benefit of that crop. And so this landowner is in a position where there's suddenly need for additional work. And he personally is going to go out and make those additional hires. Now, in order to kind of present this story in some kind of a natural frame, I added a little phrase here, one day Jesus said. In other words, one day Jesus told this story because we're starting right in chapter 20. But I want to give you a sense of the context in which the story arrives. If you read Matthew chapter 19, you'll know that immediately prior to this passage is the recording of Jesus's uh, interactions with a gentleman who's often called the rich young ruler. He's a young man who comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi, teacher, what do I need to do in order to enter the kingdom of God? We've been talking about the kingdom of God quite a bit in this series. And when we've talked about the kingdom of God, I've uh, tried to explain and emphasize that what Jesus is getting at when he talks about the kingdom of God is the life of God, the will of God, the way of God. So it has to do with eternity because God himself is eternal. His life is everlasting. His will is eternal. His ways are eternal. So when we talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, we can think of those interchangeably, we're talking about something that is everlasting. It is eternal. 
But remember that Jesus' emphasis also was to tell people the kingdom is at hand. So it's eternal, but it's also present. God who is eternal is present, relevant, engaged, involved, available. Will you say that word? Available. available. Look at it this way. The story we're about to hear indicates that God is looking to hire do you want to be hired into the kingdom of heaven? Do you want to be employed by the greatest employer ever? Do you want to be a part of the greatest organization ever? God is out there looking for who wants to come into the kingdom. And this story, as I mentioned, is told in a way that would indicate, at least from the perspective of the gospel writer, that they understand this as part of Jesus' response to the interest of that young man who said, how do I get into the kingdom? How can I be a part of what God is doing? How can I eternally connect with God? And Jesus explains to him the commandments of God. We know them as the Ten Commandments. And he, he basically emphasizes that the scripture tells us who God is and what God wants. And the young man's response is to say, that's good, I know that, I do all of that. Which is probably a bit of an overstatement on his part, wouldn't you think? <laughs> I mean, he might be a great young man, but I would hesitate to say, oh, I've got this book down and I do it all according to what God says, right? That's a good way to desire to live. It's a good way to pray. But most of us would recognize that we fall short of achieving that. But this young man says, perhaps with some hubris, I do all of that. And so Jesus says to him, there's one thing that you lack. Sell all that you have and give the money to the poor and come follow me. So simultaneously, Jesus is saying, God's not hard to know. And what God wants isn't hard to know. And God is available and open to you. But when the young man responds with, yeah, yeah, I know that. But what's the really deep thing? Then Jesus takes it to that deeper step and says, give everything away for God. In other words, it's like the parable that we looked at last week. God is that pearl most precious, the treasure hidden in the field. Give up everything else, let go of everything else in order to lay hold of that. And what turns out in that is that the young man isn't ready to let go. And why? Because he's holding a lot. You see, when you're the, la the day laborer and you're just looking for a job, you'll take the job. What do you need me to do? I can do it. <laughs> but when you've got lots of treasure already, it's hard to let go of what you treasure in order to lay hold of something that you can't see, that you can only know in the spirit. And so Jesus says to the disciples after the young man walks away, Jesus says to them, you see, it's very, very difficult for a rich person to enter into the kingdom. It might be just as well to say it's very difficult for the kingdom to enter into them because they're closed off to that because they're holding on to something else. But the disciples of Jesus are confused by that because in their society, and it's certainly not so different in ours today, they see those who have a lot of wealth as being most blessed. Now they see them as being most blessed by God. In other words, this rich young man, he must be righteous. God has blessed him and his family. They're wealthy. That's the perspective generally of the people at the time that Jesus is speaking to. Today, it's easy to bag on the rich in our society. Not many people think of the rich as highly moral. Not many thought of them as highly moral back then necessarily either. But people saw wealth in that time as being from God. People who aren't looking for God in our secular society today don't necessarily make that association. But you can certainly see that the wealthy are often the focus point of people's attentions. And when people uh, are successful in social media today, you know, whether it's on TikTok or wherever, and they're getting more views, what are they also gaining? More wealth. And people are interested in that as ever. And it says, captivating as fixating as ever. Jesus says, watch out, because that's not what it's all about. And not only that, but if you have a lot of that, you may find it hard to trust in God. And the disciples say, well, if that's the case, then, then who can possibly enter into the kingdom? If it's harder for someone, if it's harder for a camel to go 
through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom, then, then I don't understand who can enter in. I think I said that backwards, but you get the point. And so Jesus says, humanly, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now, before we breeze past that, what Jesus is saying is, you don't enter into the kingdom through your own aptitude. You don't enter in through your own ability. And you can't buy your way in. You certainly can't buy your way in with worldly wealth. You can't buy your way in with earthly influence. Doesn't matter how big the company you own is or how brilliant your, your, uh, your particular uh, business concept was. It doesn't matter how many countries you rule over. It doesn't matter how many followers you have on Instagram. The reality is none of those things can purchase entry for you into the eternal ways of God. You don't need any of that though, hallelujah. But if you have all of that, what Jesus is saying is, that may make it more difficult for you to enter in. Now, is he saying it's bad? He's not saying it's bad. He's saying it's harder because the heart becomes harder. Because it's harder for the heart to let go and trust when it's holding on to so many things that it wants. And so the story that Jesus is about to tell is a story about what the kingdom is like in this context. It's a story about how actually God is looking for people Many are called, but few are chosen. It's a phrase that shows up in some but not all of the oldest texts of this passage. But it does show up earlier in the preceding chapter, and it shows up later in Matthew chapter 22 that Jesus makes remarks uh, along the lines of the first will be last and the last will be first. Many are called, but few are chosen. And so it seems that that concept is a kind of a through line for what we're looking at today. So it was on that, in that context, at that time, on that kind of day, that Jesus told this story. And he said, this story will help you understand the way that heaven's kingdom operates. It will help you understand how it's not about earthly wealth or earthly influence, but about a generous God who makes a broad invitation but an invitation that might surprise you. There was once a wealthy landowner who went out at daybreak, so it's dawn, let's say 6 a.m., to hire all the laborers he could to find work in his vineyard. After agreeing to pay them the standard day's wage, he put them to work. In the Greek, the word agreeing there is symphoneo, symphoneo. It's where we get our English word symphony. There was a harmonious conversation between the man hiring and those that he was hiring. And there was an agreement. They harmonized. We can agree to this. I'm willing to pay you this. We're willing to do that work for a day for that amount. Harmony. The whole story is about coming into harmony with God. The whole story is about hearing the symphony that God is playing and finding out that there's a place for you in the orchestra of heaven and coming and adding your voice your instrument into that symphony. So the man has hired some at daybreak. Three hours later, he comes back. He's passing through the town square, and he finds others still waiting to work. Maybe these are ones that arrived a little bit later, or he realizes, I still need laborers. We're not going to be able to bring in the whole harvest with what I've got. So he hires more. He says, come and work for me in my vineyard. I'll pay you a fair wage. Now with these, he's not specific. So at the beginning... He has set a wage for these original workers. But from this point on, he's simply going to say, you can trust me. I'm a fair boss. I'll give you a fair wage. You're not working a full day, but I'll pay you that is something fair and comparable to what you work. So off they go to join the others. Now he does the same thing three hours later at noon, and he does it again another three hours later at 3 p.m., making the same arrangements as he did with those previously hoping to finish his harvest that day, note the sense of urgency in the story. This harvest is ready. It's, I'm going to mix the metaphors. This is about a vineyard, but I'm going to use a grain harvest analogy that Jesus uses and that you know the harvest is white. In other words, the heads of grain are visible. There is plenty of grain to be reaped in that statement. This is a vineyard where the grapes are fat and ready, ready to be picked, ready to be pressed. 
The time has come. And so there's urgency about the hiring. So he goes to the town square again at 5 p.m. This is an hour before dusk, before the sun goes down. Really, they can only work effectively in the available light of daytime. And so the whole day he's been hiring people. Now it is the 11th hour on a 12-hour clock, right? From 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. is 12 hours. And at the 11th hour, it's 5 o'clock, time to go home. He's there in the town square looking for who he can hire. Now, who is left in the town square at 5 o'clock that's a day laborer? The bright-eyed and bushy-tailed ones? The ones who you know are going to put in a really good day's work? Who are going to work hard? I mean, this is the dregs of the barrel, right? These are the, these are the guys that were maybe, you know, before they went and picked some grapes, they drank some grapes. <laughs> they had stuff to do earlier in the day. Or maybe they were sleeping that off from the night before. Or maybe nobody else wanted them. Or maybe it's no fault of their own. But maybe they're shorter. Or they have an injury. Or they're older, and they don't have the same kind of stamina. <laughs> I know what it's like to be picked last in the PE team, you know, the basketball team. I know what it's like to get picked last. That's what these guys are. No one's picked them yet. And he's picking them to come pick for him. He says, I'll hire you. In fact, his first question is, why are you still here? And they said, nobody hired us. And so he says, go into my vineyard, join the crew. Now, evening comes, so this is sometime around 6 o'clock. The sun is going down. It's time for everybody to line up, and there's a wage master who's going to be paying out uh, from the owner's supply to the workers. The foreman is instructed to call in all the laborers, line them up, and pay them all the same wage. I said the story doesn't seem to be equitable, but actually... It's perfect equity. Everyone is getting exactly the same amount. Starting with the most recent ones I hired, pay them first, then finish with the ones who've worked all the day since 6 a.m. That's a long day of working. If you've ever been out picking any kind of fruit or any kind of manual labor for 12 hours, that's a long day of working, especially in the heat of the sun. So those that were hired late in the day come to be paid, and they get paid a full day's wage. Now, the wage that's described here in the Greek text is a wage that is understood as a day wage. It is sort of the going rate for a laborer for a single day. So it was a fair wage. It's not unusual. It's not unusually generous. But it is completely appropriate for a 12-hour workday such as they have put in. And it is precisely the wage that they harmonized on, that they symphonio agreed on, and they get paid that. These are the ones, though, that were hired at the end of the day, and he said, I'll pay you a fair wage. So the wage that they are getting had only been described to him by him as fair. They must have assumed, if we're only working from five to six, we're only going to get a fraction of a day wage, but instead they get a whole day wage. They must have been absolutely delighted. Shocked, probably thinking, don't say anything. Maybe the, you know, maybe the foreman doesn't realize. <laughs> but the ones that are further back in line who have been working all day, when they see, hey, they're paying them the day wait. Well, we've been here, you know, what, 11 times, 12 times what they've been here. So we're going to get more. They thought they would get a great big bonus. But instead, they all got exactly the same thing, the standard wage. Now, how would you respond if you were the one hired at 6 a.m.? Wouldn't you feel you were being taken advantage of? Why did you come and hire us at 6 a.m. And, and offer to pay us this, and then hire people at 5 p.m. who only worked an hour and pay them the same thing? When I was in college, I was, uh, I was going to school at a, at a conservatory, and so um, in the summers, we would often try and get work there. And I, I worked for the theater. And I worked in the costume department. And there were two young women that were hired in the exact same position that I was in. And we were all part of the backstage crew for the, for the summer productions. We assumed we were all getting paid the same thing. Have you ever noticed that 
people talk about what they get paid sometimes. Workers often don't, I mean, employers don't want you to talk about what people get paid, right? We don't share that information, but workers, how much are you making? I'm making, especially college kids working over the summer. But we never, we never asked. We were having a conversation. We had to drive about half an hour, 45 minutes uh, every day as a regular part of our job uh, because one of the theaters was in a distant area. And I really don't remember how I came up, but one of them said, well, you know, I can't wait for payday when I get that whatever. And I said, wait a minute, <laughs> when you get what? Wait, you're, why are you making you know, that much more than me? I don't even remember what it was. Maybe they were making 100 more a week than me, but that was a big deal. We're all doing exactly the same job. And they said, well, how much are you making? And I said, I'm making this much. Well, why? I don't know that's what they offered. I didn't know there was a choice. I, they just said, this is what the rate is. I signed a contract. And my supervisor was in the car. She said, well, that's not right. You should go and talk to them. I said, well, why don't you talk to them? She's like, well, they won't listen to me. But you, you should talk to the bosses. So I went to them and I said, why am I making less than, than uh, the, these people that I'm working with who are making more, but we're doing exactly the same work? And they said, well, they had to travel here. You see, you lived in the area already because you were a student here, and they had to travel. I didn't feel really satisfied with that answer. <laughs> I was like, well, that was their decision, you know? I mean, what is that to you? You're... But they said, you agreed to it. I said, well, but I didn't know that you were going to pay them more. And they said, well, that's not part of our contract. Guess who won? <laughs> they won. Because legally, I had agreed to it. And I do get their point that these young women had to travel out of the area where they lived. They had to find housing for the three or four months that they were going to live there while I already had housing. But it still felt wrong to all of us because we felt like we ought to be getting paid for the same amount of work. So how much worse if they were doing less work? And I did more work, right? But the boss in this story says to these laborers that come to him and say, this isn't fair. You, you've misled us or you've mistreated us. They only worked a little bit. We've been working all day in the hot sun. How come you're paying them what you're paying us? He said, I'm not being unfair, friends. He speaks gently with them. He speaks respectfully to them. He said, I'm, I'm abiding by our contract. I'm doing exactly what I said I would do. And you agreed to it, didn't you? You said you would do this. Now, it's my money, and these are the jobs that I'm creating, and so it's my choice. If I want to hire somebody at 12 noon or 3 o'clock or 5 o'clock, and pay them exactly what I'm paying you, what difference does that make to you? Doesn't change your situation at all. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what belongs to me? Now hear this, not just in the voice of the landowner, but in the voice of God. Maybe sometimes we come to God and we say, it's not fair. And the way that you're treating me compared to the way you're treating that person, oh, that happens all the time in our minds, doesn't it? In our hearts. That person, you let that person have, the, they didn't even work as hard for that as I did. Now then, why am I? And God says, don't I have the right to do whatever I want since I've made it all, since it all belongs to me? And if I'm doing right by you, if I'm true to my word that I spoke to you and you are receiving from me the very daily bread that I've promised to you, then why were you upset with what anybody else gets? Or is it that you are jealous? Does my generosity make your eye evil? The, the Greek text is literally, is your eye evil because I am good? In other words, it's a euphemism, it's a, it's, a, it's a saying recognizable to the people of the time that basically says, do I look bad to you because I'm really bad or am I good and it's just your eye that is evil? It's your way of looking at it. In other words, the evil is in you. Remember when Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out? It's a hyperbolic statement saying, don't let sin get a hold of you the way wealth can get a hold of you, the way privilege and power and position can get a hold of you. Don't let those things lay hold of you. 
Let go of them in order to lay hold of God. If your eye is evil, says Jesus, if your eye is darkened, then there's darkness within you. And this landowner is saying, you have all this darkness in you and you're blaming it on me, but it's really in your eye. It's really your way of looking at the situation. You're jealous because now that you know that somebody else is getting exactly what you're getting, even though you don't think they deserve it, you think you deserve more. If you want to see this story played out very readily in any kind of situation, I want to remind you that we can always use volunteers in the preschool classrooms. And you'll see this played out in a preschool classroom, lickety-split, because children will be very happy with what you give them until you give somebody else the same thing, and then they want more. It's human nature. How come they got that one? That one's bigger. Well, I'll give you two. They're, they got it sooner. I want this more. You know what I mean? It's just this sense of, if there's anything to compare with, now you have just one little child and you give them one thing, they can be very happy. But sit down somebody next to them and start asking for parody and their eye will get evil. Now you can understand, Jesus says in concluding this parable, what I meant when I said the first will end up the last and the last will end up being first. He said that following the statements about the rich. We thought that the rich were especially favored by God. They'd be shoe-ins into the kingdom. No, it's actually really hard to get into the kingdom for a rich person. Well, if the rich can't get in, who can? Jesus doesn't say, the poor, because God loves the poor more. He says, basically, no one can without God's help. But God will help. But when God comes and brings help, it's often the last who are most ready to receive it. But the first think they deserve more. And so... The last will be first, and the first last. Because everyone is hired, but only a few are satisfied. That's the illustration of the story applied to the statement. Jesus is saying, I'm trying to help you understand that those who see themselves as having received more than what they deserve are the ones who are going to have joy in the Lord and see him as generous. But if you look at God and think, God owes me, you're going to be unhappy, not because God isn't good, but because your eye is evil in looking at him that way. It's like the parable of the prodigal son. The son that stayed thinks he deserves more. The son that left gets all the goods, but the father says to the son that stayed, everything that I have has always been yours. But your brother who was gone, who was lost, is back, has been found. So it's a story about who are we in the kingdom. And the reality of it is all of us are the workers standing in the square at 5 p.m. without a hope in the world, without a generous owner who comes and says, I'd like to hire you. I'd like to be in partnership with you. And I'll reward you for it. Now, some people walk with the Lord a long time and get to a place. I've seen it happen. I've even felt the inclination for it myself. You walk with the Lord a long time and then you get to a place where you think, I'm tired of this arrangement. I can't, you know, you to pay, be patient. I've been patient. Trust me, I've trusted you. You know it's going wrong when people are talking this way, but people have these conversations in their hearts, not you. I'm just filling you in on how other people talk with God. Why don't you do this? Why am I still waiting for that? And the resentment can pile up for people that have walked with the Lord for a long, long time. And sometimes people like that can get exposed to a new believer who says, I just love Jesus so much. I'm just so happy. And that, that person who's been with the Lord a long time can look at them and like, yeah, just wait. <laughs> yeah, I remember when I was like that. Mm -hmm. Wait do you see. It's not everything you thought it was. Better that you and I should look at those new believers and say, let me return to my first love. Let me remember the joy of the Lord. Let me remember that I don't deserve any of this and that what I do deserve is nothing but wrath. Somebody out there may hear that and think, well, that sounds so harsh, but wait a minute. Can you and I just reason together? Can we be honest? How speckled is your life with wrong deeds, wrong words, wrong thoughts and motives. 
Are you really looking at yourself in the mirror? Because if I look at myself and I look back over my life, it really doesn't take very long for me to see that I deserve judgment from God, but I receive blessing because of his mercy and because of Jesus' sacrifice. When you recognize that you are the one receiving the added measure of blessing, you'll realize that no matter how long you've walked with the Lord and no matter how long he asks you to be patient, it's nothing compared to what he's giving you. In fact, the other statement that Jesus talked about prior to this story was saying to the apostles who said to him, you know, Peter said, we left everything for you. I mean, that rich guy doesn't want to give up all of his riches, but we're not rich, but we left the fishing boat back up in Galilee. We left our homes. We left all our livelihood to follow you. <laughs> it's a little bit of that same sentiment of what are we going to get then? And Jesus says, no one who has left home and family and wealth or anything for my sake will not end up getting all of that and more back to them by reward. But he reminds them the last will be first and the first will be last. Think about this parable that Jesus told also. When you're invited to the party, don't go and sit in the seat of honor and have to have somebody come up to you and say, excuse me, I'm so sorry, but that's reserved for someone else. But instead, take the lowliest seat in the back, the humble place, so that the, the host of the party can come and say, no, 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 we want to have you come forward. In other words, put yourself last. And you'll be first. If you want to be great in the kingdom, make yourself a servant. Make yourself a grateful laborer. And when you see someone else being rewarded, even if it's greater than the reward that you've yet seen, if it's coming from God, rejoice in that. Rejoice honestly and earnestly. Be glad that God is generous because his generosity benefits you and me. We are the beneficiaries of God's goodness. And the closer that we are to God and the more that we walk with him, the more gratitude and thanksgiving we will have because everything good that comes from God and anything good comes from God, all of it comes by his grace and his great generosity. I mentioned the theologian Brad Young has a book called The Parables on this subject. And he wrote the parable of the fair employer, as he calls it, illustrates the divine character in concrete images of money, labor, management, and most especially the wealthy landowner who represents God. It deals in the realities of everyday life. That's one of the great benefits of the parable and of all of Jesus' parables. And it's one of the benefits that you and I can find in this story is that it relates to stuff that we understand. God is like the gracious landowner, and people see themselves in the day laborers. The crucial questions are, what is just and fair? What is God like? In what ways do God's servants resemble him and reflect the divine character in their relationships with other people? You see, if you're the type of person who comes to God and says, I'm unhappy with how you're blessing someone else, one thing that we can say most certainly is, you don't reflect the character of God. Because God is not resentful for people to be blessed. God desires that people would be blessed with life and truth. First and foremost, Brad Young says, the story attempts to imagine God in his immeasurable goodness and his unmerited generosity. And second, it focuses attention on the welcome of the outcast into the community of faith. Our evangelism will be enriched when we remember that people standing in the town square at 5 p.m. who don't look like the best of workers and who don't fit the categories and frankly maybe who weren't engaged in the best of practices are nevertheless candidates for the kingdom and God wants to reach them. So reach out to people even though it may seem almost too late. You know, I have heard many people uh, who have a disparaging word about God and religion, 
speak especially disparagingly about deathbed conversions. But I tell you, go to the person that's dying and has resisted and rejected God all their life and make the appeal again. Even if it be the 11th hour, that might be the time when their heart is most ripe to receive the invitation. I know sometimes people will say, well, you know, my brother or my uncle or that friend at work or my boss, I've talked to them so many times, but, you know, they've got inoperable cancer or they're, you know, they're, they're at this last stage and my heart is just breaking for them, but I don't know if I should talk to them. Well, don't be ungracious, don't be presumptuous, but don't fail to make the invitation again because there are people that come into the kingdom at the 11th hour and we say hallelujah and let them receive all the goodness of the kingdom. Who would we be to try and hold it back? Our great joy is that they're coming in and that we get to be there as well. Remember, that's what Jesus said to the disciples. You may be impressed that I've empowered you to cast out demons and heal people, but don't rejoice over that. Rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. Rejoice that the kingdom is available to you and remind other people, no matter how much of a prodigal they may feel, no matter how much of an outcast they may feel, the invitation is to them and they can enter in, not through effort, not through their own righteousness, but by the grace of God and the blood of Christ. So in the concluding, uh, concluding section of today's comments, I'd like to give a structure for the, uh, the story that we've just studied together. I want us to consider three things as we come to conclusion. The workers' claims, the owner's rights, and the story lessons. Starting with the workers' claims. Some expected more, and they only expected more because the landowner kept opening the door and bringing people in. And as the kingdom grew more crowded, they assumed, well, if we've been here long enough, we get the best. Do you know that this is an attitude you can find in churches? People who have been members of churches longer often feel like the church is more theirs. After all, I've been here for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, and the longer they've been there, the, the narrower their eye at looking at people who came through the door today or last week or last month or just five years ago. Because after all, I've been here. Well, remember this. That doesn't entitle you to any more of a claim on the church. The real question is, how much of a claim does God have on you? And if God's claim on you is strong, then your heart will reflect God's. And God's heart is to bless beyond expectations not to reward presumption, but to reward humility and to bless beyond expectation. But ultimately, everyone is getting the wage that has been promised. Now, the wages of sin are death, but the free gift of God is life. And that's the promise of the Lord. Come be in the kingdom and you will receive eternal life. And it's for everyone that will receive. In Proverbs, we are told, as workers who tend a fig tree are allowed to eat the fruit, so workers who protect their employer's interests will be rewarded. We started this series with a bunch of parables about the fig tree. Here's another one from the Proverbs, and I suggest that it puts this mind and heart into you and I, if we're hearing it correctly. Have the attitude of God towards the outsider. Have the attitude of God about inviting people into the kingdom, into the church, into the pews, God is generous, so be grateful. Will you say that? God is generous, so be grateful. Don't be jealous, don't be angry, don't resent God's generosity. After all, it's his right to do so. And he has no obligation to do so. It's simply his nature and character. The owner fulfilled his plan, and the plan was bring in the harvest and bring it in on time, and that's God's plan too. The harvest of salvation, the harvest of the kingdom, and he has enlisted you and I to be a part of his purpose. Say, we are people of purpose. We are people of purpose. Say, we are people of patience. We are people of patience. Say, we are people of, perseverance. We are people of perseverance. That's what God desires us to be. That's what he's commissioned us to be. That's what he will equip us to be by his spirit. 
which is the flow of his goodness and generosity to us. God's word and promise is generous, and he will fulfill it. So then, my beloved, Paul writes to the church in Philippi, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Think of it this way. So then, come work in the vineyard. Come labor in the things of the kingdom. And don't be worried about how tired you are, because as Paul writes to the Galatians, if you don't give up, you will reap a harvest in time. But now then, remember this too. It's God who's really doing the work. It's he who planted the vine. It's he who is the vine. If we are the workers, we are also the branches. The fruitfulness comes from him. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, his purpose. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will show yourselves, prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. In the world, we expect that people would get upset with what the, what the, uh, the landowner did. Whenever I've told this parable to non-believers, they, especially when people say, I love Jesus, and I love how he teaches, and he always is talking about righteousness, and I say, have you ever heard the parable of the landowner and the laborers? No, tell it to me. And I tell them, and they go, well, I don't like that one. I, that can't be what it says. It really says that? I don't like that. You know why? Because people see themselves as the ones who deserve more automatically. It is the rare person who hears that parable and puts themselves in the position of the person who got hired last. Almost no one sees themselves that way. It's like everybody on the freeway. They all think they're great drivers. Everybody thinks they have a great sense of humor. But guess what? If everybody thinks they're above average, at least half the people are wrong, right? Isn't it interesting that when this story is told, we think of ourselves in the entitled position very often. Now, somebody out there might be saying, I think of myself as the one that got hired last. Good. Then receive with joy what God is offering. But remember that if you're going to look for everything you can grab rather than give thanks for everything you've received, you'll look more like the world than you look like God. God's purpose is that you should look like him and be like him. And he is operating according to a plan and a purpose. God has a purpose, so be useful. Say that. God has a purpose, so be useful. And part of being useful is to be humble and helpful and grateful. Humble and helpful and grateful. Grateful because God is true to his word. The Lord is not slow about his promise, Peter reminds us, but he's patient. He's out there hiring He's out there seeking and looking, not just at the dawn of the day, but every section of the day, looking, reaching, seeking. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all to come in and be a part of the harvest. The harvest is big enough for more. In fact, Jesus says the fields are white for harvest, so pray to the Lord of the harvest to send more workers, to bring more people into the kingdom. But recognize this, coming into the kingdom means coming out of the world. Be in the world, but not of it, right? In other words, don't be bound up in the worldly way of thinking, and don't be surprised that there will be a reversal of earthly fortunes. Paul writes to Timothy, his protege, and says, instruct the rich people in this present world. But he's talking about the rich of the church. So it is, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy. Hallelujah, if God has blessed you, then glory to God for that. But Paul is saying in the inspired scripture, if you are wealthy, don't be conceited about it and don't fix your hope on that. Make sure that if Jesus said to you, sell all you have and give it to the poor in order to follow me, that you'd be willing to do it. Maybe giving away will help you know whether it's holding on to you or not. Give away until it hurts and that's when you find the place where it's got a hold on you. Paul says, watch out. If you're putting your hope on riches, then your hope isn't on God. But if you hope in God, God richly supplies us with all things that we need, all things we can enjoy. So tell the rich to do good, to be rich not just in wealth but in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Now these are things that the poor should be doing too as well, right? But Paul is mindful that people who have a lot may have trouble giving it away or putting their trust fully on God. 
Store up for yourself the treasure of a good foundation for the future, what Jesus called treasure in heaven, so that you can take hold of life, which is what the kingdom is all about. Finally, be grateful for the harvest and helpful to your fellow workers, regardless of what they look like, of what their background is, of when and how they entered the field, when they came into the church, when they came into the kingdom. Love them, receive them, encourage them, bless them. I want to show you several scriptures that make us mindful of this attitude. Romans 12, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. He's talking particularly in the church. Be at peace with your fellow believers, but be peaceable with people of the world as well. Philippians 2, don't do anything from selfishness or contentiousness or empty conceit, but have humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Look at others as those that were hired before you and put yourself in the position of one that was hired later. Look out for their interests. Work at living in peace with everyone. Work at living a holy life, Hebrews 12 says. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. And holiness comes from the Lord. So trust the Lord to give you the holiness. And when he does, it will include humility and helpfulness towards others. Finally, I close with this. Jesus' famous high priestly prayer in John 17. I want to just read several portions of how Jesus prayed for you and I that I believe suits the lesson of this parable. Father, he prayed, I have revealed you to the ones that you gave me. He's praying this on the last night before he dies on the cross. They were yours and you gave them to me. They have fastened your word firmly to their hearts and now at last they know that everything I have is a gift from you. The anointing of Christ came as a gift of the Spirit to the Son from the Father. The very words you gave me to speak, Jesus says, I have passed on to them. They have received your words and carry them in their hearts. They are convinced that I have come from your presence and they have fully believed that you sent me to represent you. So with deep love, I pray for my disciples. This is Jesus praying for you and I. For all who belong to me now belong to you. And all who belong to you now belong to me as well. And my glory is revealed through their surrendered lives. Your word is truth, so make them holy by the truth. I have commissioned them to represent me just as you commissioned me to represent you. And now I dedicate myself to them as a holy sacrifice so that they will live as fully dedicated to God and be made holy by your truth. And I ask not only for these disciples that are there in the room with him, but also for all those who will one day believe in me through their message. You are in the Bible. Jesus prays specifically for you. I pray for them all to be joined together as one. With what kind of unity? Even as you and I, Father, are joined together as one. Jesus Christ is God. When you have seen the Son, you have seen the Father, for the Father and the Son are one. And the Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of the Father, is the Holy Spirit of God, and these three are one. And Jesus is saying, with the oneness that I am, so make these one with each other and in us, in me. I pray for them to become one with us and experience the same unity that we enjoy. That is the kingdom. That's the invitation. Come into the heart of God and experience his one love for you. You live fully in me, says Jesus to the Father, and now I live fully in them so that they will experience perfect unity for you love each one of them with the same passionate love that you have for me. Each one of them. If we don't have this kind of love from God for one another, then we do not know what love is. This is the love that God has given us. And he says, I pray that they may experience the same endless love that you have for me, for your love will now live in them even as I live in them. Jesus had earlier that night said, loving me empowers you to obey my commands, and I give you a new commandment, love one another. 
If those who were hired at the beginning of the day had love for those who were hired at the end, they would not have complained, they would not have objected, they would have rejoiced, even as the angels in heaven rejoice every time someone is brought into the kingdom. So have that heart in you. God is generous, so be grateful for it because it applies to you. God has a purpose, so be busy and useful in doing the thing you've been commissioned to do, which is to share the word of God, to share the love of the Lord, and to make the invitation because God has made us his partners in declaring the kingdom to the world. So be helpful, be humble, and through it all, be patient. Be patient. You're going to be well paid by the Lord, far beyond anything you and I could ever deserve, because in him is life, now and everlasting. Amen and amen. Lord, we thank you for the glorious blessing you have given us of invitation into the kingdom. And yet we're mindful of your word that says many are called, but few are chosen. Let us not reject you, Lord. And wherever we have harbored any bitterness or resentment or complaint, we just bring it before you, Lord. We don't try and hide it. We don't try and deny it. We just simply repent of it. We ask that you would dig that out of our heart and replace it with the heart of gratitude and the, and the sense of humility that comes from you. And Lord, for anyone who's there in the 11th hour, whether it's the end of their life or they perceive it to be the end of their life or they're just at the end of their rope and they're wondering, is there any way that God would want me? Nobody wants me. How would God want me? I pray that they would see you, Jesus, in their heart and mind right now, sense you in their spirit, feel you in the atmosphere of wherever they are, and hear you saying, I want you. I choose you. I call you. I died for you to forgive you. My blood cleanses you. And my word reaches you with the promise of life. Don't worry about how long you've been waiting. Don't worry about how long you've been wayward. Simply receive the invitation today. But you've got to let go of everything else and lay hold of me. Will you come into the kingdom now? That request comes to you, whoever you are, wherever you are. And if your answer is yes, then tell him that right now. Say yes. Yes, Lord. I receive your offer. I give you myself. Use me in your harvest and connect me to your body. I want to be in your kingdom forever. And in Jesus, the answer is yes and amen.